Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Within a few generations after the death of Muhammad, Muslims developed complex legal and theological traditions that shaped the boundaries of what was deemed Islamic. In Coercion and Responsibility in Islam, a study in Ethics and Law, published with Oxford University Press, Mehraj Saeed examines how the constraints of interpretive traditions were tested under questions of coercion. He demonstrates that very often theological and legal reasoning moves beyond our expectations and interpretive conclusions are contradictory within seemingly uniform schools. He shows how members of the Mutazila and Ashari schools of theology determine the legal and moral responsibility of individuals who have been pressured to say or do something under coercive conditions. He also explores Hanafi and Shafi illegal definitions of coercion and the various types of reasoning principles for drawing what is licit. These conundrums are hashed out through hypothetical coerced speech acts, such as proclamations of divorce, sales transactions, or legal acknowledgement, and coerced harm, as in rape or homicide. In our conversation, we discuss moral agency, the formative period of legal and theological traditions, conventional presumptions about these legal and theological schools, how tradition works and operates, interpretive ambiguity within schools of thought, various instances of coercion, wrestling with the vast amount of Hadith literature, and the fashioning of interpretive norms. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. And now my conversation with Mayraj Saeed about coercion and responsibility in Islam, a study in ethics and law. Welcome. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. How's it going today? It's going great. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, so it was a pleasure reading this book, uh, Coercion and Responsibility in Islam, A Study in Ethics and Law. Um, But before we kind of hop right in, uh, we usually like to get a little bit of background about how you got interested in the study of uh, Islam and Muslim societies, perhaps uh, mentors or moments that have shaped how you uh, approach the topic or the types of questions you ask. What's your story? Uh, sure. Um, so I, I grew up in a fairly practicing Muslim religious household in Texas throughout the 80s and 90s. So religion was always a very big, Islam was always a very big part of our, our family life and our communal life, or the, the life of our community. And my father also had a fairly large library of various theological books uh, in English, and I was always... Uh, the reader in my family. So, you know, we were going to mosques on Sunday school and uh, had this library at home and we had a fairly religious uh, family culture. And it, and I was just intellectually very curious about, about Islam, Islamic theology, Islamic philosophy, Islamic law. So I grew up in that kind of, in that environment and uh, very, you know, by the time, I had finished high school. I had pretty much gone through my father's library 
and I had also been introduced to kind of the core disciplines of, of Islamic thought, like um, Arabic language and grammar, law, theology, in a very introductory way, but in a somewhat, a much more systematic way than what people are typically taught in Sunday school. And that's just because the imam at our local masjid was an alim in his own right. His name was Yusuf Ziyakavakchi, and he he studied the traditional Islamic sciences in the Ottoman curriculum because it was originally from Turkey. And he kind of introduced me and, you know, my friends that attended this mosque to the Islamic sciences in a very systematic way. So by the time I had left high school and left Dallas, which is where I grew up, and went to college at UT Austin, I had already kind of had a very deep and abiding interest in the history of the development of of Islamic law and theology and scripture and stuff like that. Um, and I went, when I when I got to UT Austin, you know, typical immigrant kid. You, you know, my parents were kind of really encouraged me, although they didn't. They didn't force me. They really encouraged me to do one of two things, which I think any anyone coming from an immigrant family is going to relate to this. You either go be an engineer or you go and you go go into medicine. Those are the two those are the two options. And in the early 90s, in the mid 90s, early 90s, law school was becoming like the human humanistic option. So I started out electrical engineering and I did one semester of it and you know, it was all right. Uh, I did well. I actually did well in my electrical engineering class, but it was. I looked at the curriculum for the next four years, and it was just completely no flexibility whatsoever. And growing up in high school, I did well in school, but I was really kind of very interested in, in, in literature, in philosophy, in history. Those were like my. Those were the subjects that I loved. Um, so if I went through with this electrical engineering degree, I would get very little of that and it would just be kind of a grind. So the compromise solution with my parents was actually not to do a humanities degree, but to, uh, pursue a business degree, which would give me some practical skills, but also give me a lot more flexibility and allow me to take Islamic studies classes, Middle East studies classes and philosophy classes and things like that. So I actually graduated with undergrad in uh, management information systems. And I worked for a couple of years uh, for various companies as a data network analysis for three years. And by the end of that three years, actually by the, by the time I had graduated, by the time I had finished my undergrad, I knew I wanted to go back and do a PhD. And, and, and that while I was there is when UT Austin kind of hired its first bonafide Islamic studies professor who happened to be, you know, who's, who's a big name in the field right now, Khalid Abul-Fadl. That's where he started out. So, you know, that was an eye-opening event. Taking his classes was an eye-opening event. It was an eye-opening not just because I got to see how Islam is studied in an academic environment, but also it opened my eyes to the opportunity of teaching and studying and researching and writing about Islamic studies in this whole other set of institutions, academia, and that was like, by the time I graduated, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But I was like, all right, I'm going to, I got this degree in business. Let me see where it takes me. And uh, I worked for three years. And at the end of the three years, I had gotten married and I had also um, had my first child. We had our first child. But at the end of it, I just found absolutely no intellectual satisfaction in the work that I was doing. 
So my wife, probably the best decision that I've ever made was marrying my wife, who allowed me to chunk this fantastic, very high, well-compensated career in information sciences, in uh, information technology, and throw it all away to apply to graduate school and start my graduate studies. And I did a few years at UCLA, and then I transferred, and I and I ended up finishing my PhD at Princeton University. So that kind of, in a nutshell, is my my origin story, <laughs> <laughs> my Islamic studies origin story. Now, um, this project had some roots in that graduate work that you did. Can you talk a little bit about how you started to conceptualize this particular project, and then how it developed into the the book that it has become? Um, sure. I knew that while I was doing my PhD coursework, I knew that I wanted to do something that tied together my three interests, which was history, which was ethics, and which was philosophy. So I was fishing around for a topic that would allow me to integrate these three disciplines and these three subjects that I just found fascinating. And one day I was reading, uh, reading through a chapter in a fiqh, a positive Islamic law book on, on coercion. And, um, I was reading through some of the problems that were posed, hypotheticals that were posed in that chapter. And it just struck me as like extremely fascinating, which basically the problem is if you're forced to do something you don't want to do and it goes, against some established norm or law, what effect does the fact that you're forced have on the way that responsibility is distributed between between the coerced, between the coercer, and between the victim and things like that? So reading those case studies, I was like, yeah, this is it. This is very concrete. It's got it's a fascinating scenario. And I, what I would learn actually much later on is that there is a rich body of literature on coercion and responsibility in contemporary uh, Anglo-American philosophy and ethics. So there was even a, a something that I could compare the Islamic theological and legal discourses to something outside of Islam. So that ended up being like uh, something that I had not foreseen, but something that was definitely helpful. Now, uh, you're right. I think you do a really good job of kind of balancing this kind of concrete case study uh, that allows you to get into the the weeds, so to speak. Uh, but it also allows you to kind of um, theorize about kind of broader questions that I think a lot of people, um, not only in Islamic studies but uh, beyond, can really uh, can really utilize. And for, for me, one of the things that I'm really interested in is this notion of tradition. And you talk about. Uh, Kind of this relationship between tradition and interpretation, which, in the case of coercion, becomes very, very complex. Um, so, can you can you set us up here? Uh, because this is kind of a, a, a train of thought that goes throughout the book. How how do you conceive of tradition in your book? And then, how does these these categories that you uh, pose of constraint and contingency f- figure into interpreting tradition? Sure. So one of the things that anyone that does pre-modern intellectual history, pre-modern Islamic intellectual history, one of the things that they 
very quickly become aware of is the fact that you had authors writing and they belonged to different schools of thought or different traditions. So very quickly after the 10th century uh, in law uh, and in theology, you weren't writing as an individual, you were writing as a representative uh, person, a scholar who belonged to a school of thought. So you're reading these, these works that were written by these authors, and these works are extremely technical, and they are conceptually very dense. Um, and they are works that belong to a given school. So the problem is, because they're technical, and because they are kind of building off of ideas over the course of many generations, it is actually quite difficult to interpret them and make sense of them by simply relating them to a larger political or social context. Because these works are so technical, they're not necessarily respond. They're not like op-eds in the New York Times or anything like that. They're not explicitly responding to events as they're occurring. Um, they are more like textbooks in a discipline. Uh, and they're dealing with problems that are particular and specific to a discipline, but through the prism of a given school, of a, of a given tradition. So the challenge for me is, all right, how do I make sense of this material? How do I make sense of the fact that these are very technical works and it doesn't really help to say, well, the caliph was doing this at the time and there was a power struggle between the ulama and the the viziers or the sultan at, at, in these centuries, that was not really helpful. Not when you're dealing with highly technical topics. So that's out. So, so when I looked a little bit closer, what I realized is two things. One is the school to which the author belonged is extremely important. That is an extremely important factor in how you make sense of these ideas. And two apart from the technicality of these traditions was also the fact that these different schools were competing with each other. Uh, so you can't really make sense of Mu'tazilism unless you also factor in the fact that they are competing with and responding to Ash'arism. And similarly, Ash'arism is competing with and responding to Mu'tazilism. And in the time period that I was dealing with from the 10th century till about the 12th, century. That was also the case with Hanafism and Shafism. When you read the fiqh books, the positive law books, you quickly realize these guys are citing each other and they're responding to each other. So you combine those two, those three factors. The fact that you have these schools, the fact that there's competition between these schools, and the fact that this is a very technical discourse. And I tried to come up with a framework that would allow scholars to to use these, these elements to interpret these types of texts. And that framework is what I call the constraint and contingency model uh, of tradition-based rationality. And basically, and in fact, I think my model is not just useful for interpreting Islamic texts, but I think my model is useful for interpreting anywhere where you have traditions where you have a plurality of traditions and a tolerance of multiple traditions such that they're competing with each other and you have a fairly technical discourse. 
Um, so it's, I think that the model is extensible to wherever you have these phenomena. And the constraint and contingency model is basically made up uh, the, of two parts. Uh, the constraint part can be subdivided into three different types of constraints. What I call the internal constraint, what I call the external constraint, and what I call the domain-specific constraint. The internal constraint is the element that tries to map out the influence of belonging to a tradition. So when you belong to Mu'tazilism or Hanafism or Shafi'ism or Ash'arism, what exactly does the effect of belonging to that school have on your scholarship, on the reasons that you give, on the positions that you take? That's what the internal constraint tries to capture, is what does that mean? And belonging to a school, how specifically and how exactly does it constrain the positions that you take and the reasons that you give for the positions that you take? That's the internal constraint. So you cannot be a Hanafi. If you say, for instance, and this was, a, this was a big issue that I examined in detail, the issue is this. If you are coerced to utter a divorce, I mean, that's the way that divorces happen in Islamic law. You say the, the specific utterance that says you want to get a divorce if you're a man, and the divorce happens. The divorce is effective. The problem that coercion poses is, well, what if somebody is forcing you, coercing you by threatening your life? If you don't divorce your wife, I'm going to kill you. Does that invalidate that pronunciation of divorce or not? The Hanafis unanimously, unanimously said, it doesn't matter. I mean, they kind of took what was a, to me, non-commonsensical and counterintuitive position, which is, it does not matter if you're coerced or not. If Even if you're coerced, if you say it, you're divorced. Now, that was the Hanafi position. No Hanafi ever said otherwise, for the most part. There's one exception. But if you were to adopt a position that was opposite to that, that would really kind of en endanger your membership in the Hanafi school. So that's what it meant to be a Hanafi. You were constrained to uphold the positions that were passed down from one generation to another, the legal positions, the laws that that made Hanafism, Hanafism. Now, that was how you were con uh, constrained in Hanafism. That may not be how you're constrained in Mu'tazilism and Ash'arism. Um, so that's what the internal constraint is all about. The external constraint tries to capture the idea of competition between traditions. So you're externally constrained in the sense that you always know that whatever you say, whatever position you take and whatever reasons you give for that position is going to be scrutinized by people belonging to a different school. Um, and you are aware of that. And you are constantly trying to come up with reasons that are aware of potential criticisms um, and that is kind of like how you're externally constrained. constrained. And then the domain-specific constraint is the idea that emerges when you compare ethics or law across time periods and cultures. So what ended up happening is when I compared like the positions and the reasons given for issues 
documenting coercion and responsibility in Islam. With the way that these similar issues were debated in Anglo-American law and philosophy, what I ended up finding is, wait a minute, there's a lot of similarity. There's a lot of structural similarity in the way that these guys are arguing uh, for these on these issues and discussing these issues. So what that pointed to me is maybe there's something about the questions itself and about human thinking about the questions within like particular disciplines like philosophy or law that encourages people from different time periods and from different cultures to articulate their ideas, articulate their positions and the reasons for them in broadly similar terms. So this is something that is beyond like which tradition do you belong to and beyond what tradition are you competing against, but just emerges from the types of questions that you're asking. That's kind of like what the, uh, the domain specific constraint is supposed to do. So those are all of the constraints that kind of help an intellectual historian make sense of this. The other big thing that I said was there's also contingent factors, factors that are outside of the implications, the logical implications for taking a position like things like, well, what's the tradition that you're competing against? Uh, Because if Hanafism was competing against Malikism, then you could imagine that the reasons that they give for their laws would be very different. And that's a contingent factor that is more due to history and not anything due to the structure of reasons and implications uh, and relationships between the actual reason-giving practice. So that's the contingent part of of uh, things that are outside of the practice of giving, re- giving reasons, but that affect the... The, the intellectual discourse of a given scholar, of a given tradition, given school. Um, and you put those two together, the idea of constraints with its three types, and the idea of contingency. And I think I ended up, although I mean, I ended up to me producing like a fairly robust uh, and useful framework for analyzing uh, history ideas in in history i i agree i think it's very useful and uh i hope i hope people will uh check it out even if uh, they're not interested in theology or law just just for that kind of framework um so one of one of the things you do um also or or kind of challenge is uh you, you talk about how when we're dealing with certain schools or in this case if we want to call them traditions um, very often our expectations um, set up kind of uh, preconceptions about what we will look for then. And um, you, you, when you're talking about uh, the Mutazala and Ashari, uh, you say we have certain expectations of that in general, but your work, when you actually kind of get go through the text and see what people are saying, uh, very much kind of disrupt those assumptions. Um so can can you talk a little bit about what um, what are the tropes through which these groups are generally characterized, um, and then how your work kind of uh, challenges this in relation to compulsion and and moral agency? 
Right. Um, yeah, this is, uh, yeah, thanks for this question. So basically, if you read the secondary literature and existing scholarship on, let's say, the theological schools, the stereotypical the stereotypical description of Mu'tazilism is it's the uh, rationalist school par excellence. It, it, it embodies the, a rationalist spirit of inquiry. And um, and then you look at the Ash'aris. The Ash'aris is kind of a middle ground. It's moderately rationalist. It defends the positions that the Ahl Hadith are committed to using reason and rational ideas, but it's committed to these traditional positions. And, but what I end up arguing is that um, this is actually not a very helpful helpful way of, uh, of interpreting Mu'tazilism and Ash'arism, especially when you look at concrete issues and the way that Ash'aris and Mu'tazilis give reasons for the, their positions. Um, because when you look closer at their actual argumentation on, for instance, coercion and moral agency. The, the basic problem that the theologians dealt with is, does, is it a requirement that acts must be uncoerced, must, must be free in order for God to hold a person responsible for that? And the Mu'tazili said, yes, in order for Taklif for moral agents to be moral agency to be valid. One of the conditions is that the that the agent must be free, must be uncoerced, and the Ash'ari said no. That is not the case, uh, and they had a very healthy, uh, a very sophisticated defense of their positions. But when you look closer at the the argumentation between them, what you quickly find is that. You know what? The Mu'tazilis use cite scripture all the time. And you know what? The Ash'aris use all kinds of rationalistic arguments. And in fact, they are both, uh, and Sherman Jackson has this, has this uh, phrase, they are both traditions of reason. Their fundamental starting points and assumptions are different. The Mu'tazilis tend to emphasize that uh, God is just in a way that is noble by human beings, and they prioritize that, whereas the Ash'aris prioritize the idea that God has a monopoly over every single thing that happens in the universe, including volitional human action. So they have two different starting points, and it's not a commitment to reason uh, or scripture that really makes sense of how they argue for their positions, but more the fact that they have two different, two different fundamental commitments in their theology that they're trying to elaborate because they are trying to build a philosophical system based on commitments to these two core, two or three core positions. And they're also trying to defend, defend the philosophical systems that they build against each other. And really it's the, it's the interaction it's the 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 fact of competition um, and the fact that they're committed to these two different two or three different core starting points that explains the development of ideas within these traditions um, more than the fact that Mu'tazilim was supposedly committed to rationalism 
and Ashadism was committed to the a defense of scripturalism. Now, you you kind of explore this in a, in a similar way um, with these kind of deep reads of uh, Hanafis and Shafis. Uh, can you can you set us up again with this kind of idea? What what are the expectations uh, a reader might come to when they're thinking about these types of source materials? And then um, in these legal traditions, how how do they um, define uh, coercion as a matter of law? What differences do we find there? So um, when it comes to the expectations, the in the scholarly literature, what you the the way that Hanafism is described is Hanafism is kind of like Mu'tazilism. It's the it's the more rationalist of the two traditions. Um, and the way that it's described is in the early period of Hanafism, it was super rationalist. And then it kind of ends up adopting uh, a more textualist or scripturalist mode of, uh, ex- uh, of explaining laws uh, later on in its history. And then Shafism, from its very, the very moment of its beginning, is supposed to be the, the tradition that insists on scripture's authority and only scripture's authority as capable of justifying laws. And, you know, that's kind of what it represents. But what you, what I found is actually very different that, uh, and what I did was I compared these two traditions on three, three different topics. One is how do they define exactly what is and what is not coercive Two is what is the effect that coercion has on different types of speech acts like divorce, marriage, sale. Those are three concrete examples of speech acts. And three is what is effect? What is the effect that coercion has on if you're forced to harm someone and the two specific types of harms that, the jurors treat is what if you're forced to murder someone? What if you're coerced to murder someone? What if you're coerced to rape someone? And what you quick, what I quickly found out is actually that when it comes to different topics, you find different amounts of scripture versus different amounts of rationalistic justification. And that in fact, the most scripturalist uh, tradition was the Hanafis when they came to talk about divorce, about coercion and speech acts. The Hanafis engage in a highly intricate analysis of Quran, of all of the relevant hadith, and they couch their defense uh, of Hanafi laws largely through interpretation of scripture. And And then what I found was when it came to defining what exactly is coercive and what is not, the Shafis are actually the most rationalist because they hardly ever, you know, consult scripture or justify their positions using scripture. They rely on common sense, rational, empirical ideas to define what is coercive and what is not. So, uh, that kind of already breaks down these fundamental descriptions of the Hanafis as rationalists and the Shafi'is as scripturalists because it actually does not make sense of the data. 
uh, and that there is actually a much more complicated story going on. And it really depends on what specific topic you're looking at. Uh, that's going to end up really explaining the types of reasons that the, the jurists give for their laws. So it makes sense that Hanafis would... The, the reason why Hanafis are so scripturalist when it comes to coercion and speech acts is because when you look very closely at it, they were the lone tradition uh, on... They had that funny position on divorce. All of the other Sunni schools and even Shi'i schools, all of them had the opposite position. So they were in the extreme minority. So it would, they knew that, and they knew that. So it would make, it makes complete sense, given the stacks that were, that the, the, the fact that the deck was stacked against them, that they would make sure to defend their minority position with the highest authority available, and that's scripture. So it makes sense that they would draw on scripture's authority to defend their position because they were completely in the minority. Um, so that's kind of like one uh, one way in which expectations about how these traditions work is con- confounded when you look a little bit closer to the actual argumentation and reasoning that they that these legal traditions give for their laws. Um, and you had asked, you had also asked about the uh, how do they define what is coercive and what is not, right? How and this was an extremely uh, challenging issue. And it was challenging not just for the Muslim jurists, but pretty much anyone that's a lawyer or jurist. Because when you examine the debates uh, in contemporary Anglo-American jurisprudence, you find that they have the same difficulty. And that's because it's actually a very difficult problem. So everyone kind of pretty much agrees. If your life is threatened, that is definitely coercive. Right? Like, that's pretty much the highest level of coercion there is. If you, don't, if somebody asks you, if you don't sell me your iPad, I'll kill you. And you, for a dollar, let's say, uh, and you do the act in order to avoid the punishment, you can very easily go to the police and the court and the judge and say, hey, listen, uh, I want you to invalidate the sale. I want my iPad back. Um, and uh, the court will say, yeah, of course, that makes complete sense because you were, did not willingly sell your, sell your iPad. Uh, but what about if the threat was not, I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to beat you up? Is the court willing to set aside? Uh, okay, fine. Yeah, the court might say, yeah, you know what? Uh, we are going to set aside the sale and you get your iPad back. Because, yeah, it's coercive. But what if the coercer demands not that you sell your iPad, but that you kill kill someone else? Then, all of a sudden, what is coercive, to the extent that it changes responsibility, we're not so sure about that anymore. Are we going to be, are we, are we willing to say, yeah, if you kill someone and you claim you were coerced because there was a threat against your life, you're not legally responsible you're not morally responsible uh what if you just the threat is just getting beat up uh and you kill someone are we gonna hold you responsible are we gonna insist that no you should have resisted 
and you're going to get charged for the crime. Um, then all of a sudden, you know, is what is coercive, like just merely an empirical matter? It doesn't seem that way. If you change based on what the coercer demands you to do, then, then it's not really an empirical matter. Then it depends on a whole host of considerations. So it's questions like these that the Hanafi jurists and the Shafi jurists struggled with. And in fact, the Shafi, the Shafis were internally divided. They, they kind of had two different approaches to the problem in their school. One was like the bright red line approach. And the bright red line approach was like, you know what? The only thing that's coercive is threats against life or limb. That's the only thing we're going to admit as coercive. And the other was like, no, we want to be a lot more sensitive to context. And what is threatening to, you know, a wimpy guy may not necessarily be threatening to a, you know, Hulk Hogan type of guy. Uh, We want to be able to take those factors into consideration. That was like the second approach. And Shafism was internally divided on what the correct approach was. And the Hanafis had their own idiosyncratic approach. Uh, the reason why is because they had this position on coerced divorces that made their approach to what is and what is not coercive a lot more complicated than, than the other legal schools. So hopefully I've given some flavor of the diff- conceptual difficulties uh, uh, that face anyone that tries to come up with a legal standard for defining coercion. It's co- actually quite not uh, not an easy matter. And my book kind of goes into, in a very detailed way, exactly what were the arguments for these different standards and, uh, and how do we make sense of them. Yeah, of course, uh, we can't get into all the details here, but uh, I think you're giving a clear picture of some, some of the contours of the conversations. Um, and towards the end of the book, you go into these more kind of specific uh, cases or examples. And maybe you can kind of uh, walk us through a little bit of that. Um, so you talk about these legal questions regarding coerced speech acts that you mentioned before, such as uh, proclamations of divorce or sale transactions or legal acknowledgement. Uh, so what what conclusions did scholars draw when thinking about coerced speech acts, and, and how do they come to these positions? So the Shafi'is had, the, had an easy time because for them, the solution was simple. If you're coerced, uh, if you're forced to say something you don't want to do, then that invalidates the speech act. And it doesn't matter what type of speech act it is, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a divorce, whether it is a, an acknowledgement. And an acknowledgement is like when you acknowledge that you have... You have uh, borrowed money for someone and yet you own you owe them something that's that's what I, a, a typical acknowledgement is that uh, is that you acknowledge that somebody has a legal right over you um, so they said look uh, the prophet said God uh, does not hold a person responsible for things that they are coerced to do and therefore we do not we invalidate the legal consequences of a divorce, a marriage, uh, a, an acknowledgement. If someone is coerced to say it, they, they didn't really mean it. It doesn't make sense to hold them legally viable, liable. Um, so the Shafi's kind of had a very straightforward approach to, to coercion and speech acts. The Hanafis did it. And the Hanafis 
could have adopted, in fact, the exact diametric opposite, which is, look, coercion does not have any effect on all types of speech acts. But they actually did not take that stand either. <laughs> so they ended up distinguishing between different types of speech acts. So they said, when it comes to divorces, marriages, oaths, uh, emancipations, like when you emancipate a slave, um, that's one type of speech act. And you know what? Coercion has absolutely no effect. Whether you're coerced or whether you're un uncoerced. It doesn't matter. If you say it, the legal consequences follow. However, they did. They had the opposite approach when it came to sales. So if you are coerced to sell your iPad for like 50 cents, and you went to a Hanafi jurist, and you asked him for a fatwa, the Hanafi jurist would say, yeah, that sale is invalid. You can take the iPad guy to court and get your iPad back. Um, so they had this discrepancy, like, what's the difference? Like the Shafis came up to them and said, dude, this is completely inconsistent. This makes no sense. Why are you allowing, uh, coercion to invalidate sales, but not allowing coercion to invalidate divorces and marriages? And so the, the Hanafis had to like, and had to come up with a defense of this. And they found a script interpretation of scripture um, and they basically, they said, look, when it comes to sales, scripture has told us that only sales that are undertaken through mutual contentment between the contracting parties, they use this term rida, uh, only sales that have that mutual contentment are valid and coercion invalidates rida invalidates that contentment, that satisfaction, and therefore uh, we uh, can invalidate coerced sales, coerced commercial transactions. But there is no such requirement when it comes to marriages and divorces and emancipations. Um, so we can't, we can't invalidate those. So, you know, it, it's not like the, the Hanafis were lacking and reasons, and that's something that you actually read the, when you read the when you read the when you read the when you read the when you read these when you read the legal literature that the schools always were able to develop extremely reasonable and robust defenses and justifications for the positions to which they were committed, and you end up seeing actually they were quite creative uh, in that you, you get a sense of their intellectual creativity. So uh, could you walk us through the legal reasoning around coerced harm? Um, so how did scholars treat cases of uh, things like coerced rape or homicide? And how did they navigate the issues of uh, moral evaluation versus legal liability? Yes, yes. Um, and that was like one of the m main conflicts and debates. And one of the things – so th there are two, two, there's two cases of coerced harm. One is – if somebody coerces somebody else to murder someone, murder a third party, innocent third party, who is held responsible and at what level? That's the question. Like, uh, and by level, I mean, uh, are they who's going to pro be prosecuted and who's going to be punished in this world? And then at the moral level, 
has anyone committed a sin and are they liable to be punished by God in the hereafter, right? Those are the two fundamental questions. The who and to what to and at what level. And similarly, the case the case is uh, similar uh, structurally similar to rape. If someone coerces someone else to rape an innocent third party, A coerces B to rape C, then who is held responsible? Is A res- held responsible? Is B held responsible? Does C have any liability? And again, the question of level. Like, who is the legal system supposed to punish? And has anyone committed a moral infraction that is punishable by God in the hereafter? So those were the two, those are, that's, that's kind of like the, the crux of the conceptual issues that animated the debate uh, between scholars. Uh, one thing that's really interesting is that um, there is a difference between the way that the discourse on coerced harm compares to the discourse on coerced speech. So coerced speech was a largely, especially from the Hanafi side, the justification and discourse and discussion was involved was how do you interpret the relevant Hadith texts and Quran texts properly? I mean, that's how justification took place. And uh, But that's not the case when it comes to coerced harm. Largely, coerced harm uh, whether it's rape or whether it's uh, murder, the discussion between the Hanafis and between the Shafi'is and between the two schools took place as how do you apply these different moral and legal principles and empirical descriptions and come up with the right legal position. Um, so that's like something to notice about the way that legal discourse works, that it's not uniform across different problems, that in fact it changes, its character changes. Um, The other thing to notice is that all the Hanafis had one position on speech acts, all the Shafis had one position on the speech acts. So there was a lot of internal unity within the schools on the particular issue of speech acts. That that is actually not the case when it comes to coerced harm. In fact, when it came to the murder issues, in Hanafism there are three separate Internal, there's internal disagreement on what the right answer is on the issue of murder, and there's two two positions on rape. And similarly, when it come to came to Shafiism, there are two positions on murder. So here, even within the schools, you have a lot of internal differentiation uh, and a lack of uh, uniformity. So that could actually be an explanation for why there isn't that much scriptural justification is because they were not competing with other schools. But anyways, let's talk about exactly how the Hanafis and Shafis went about analyzing coerced murder, for instance. The Hanafis uh, basically said they had three positions. One position, which was, seems to have been like the dominant, it came to, it came to be the dominant position of the school, which was a position that was attributed to Abu Hanifa the, and Shaybani, Abu Hanifa's students, student. And their position was this. Look, if A coerces B to kill C, and because it's murder, the threat has to be against B's life or something that would lead to the ending of B's life, right? Um, so that's like one qualification that they had. 
If it was less than that, then that's not truly coercive, and actually B is straightforward to murder. But let's say A threatens B's life and and demands that B kill C, right? So the Abu Hanifa Shaybani position said A is held entirely legally responsible for the act, and he can face the maximum uh, penalty punishment, which is execution for the act. B is not legally held responsible at all. Um, and the reason why is because they said, look, psychologically, when somebody threatens your life, it's like it messes up your thinking. Like B, A's threat against B's life mess, messes up B's deliberative processes to such an extent that B cannot even choose between alternatives. Like it messes up the the, the process of choosing so much that it is as if B is a tool in A's hands. That's what they said. Just like A could use a knife to kill C, A uses B through the instrument of the threat against his life to kill C. And that's the reason why A is held fully responsible and B is not. Um, however, <laughs> here's a really interesting part. B still commits a sin if B acquiesces and kills C. Right? Despite the fact that he's coerced, he still commits a sin. So then you're kind of like, what? How do they make sense of that? Um, and basically, what they say is, uh, and another thing is that they say that if B resists A's demand and refuses to kill C to the point that B dies himself or suffers harm, B commits a virtuous deed and dies a martyr's death. That's another thing that um, they said. But let's go back to the issue of how can B sin but still but not be held legally responsible. And the Abu Hanifa Shaybani position had a really interesting justification for why that is the case. They brought in an issue related to ritual law to explain how this could be the case. So they said, look, Let's look at the issue of a muhrim. And a muhrim is a person who has entered into a state of consecration in order to do hajj, right? Uh, and when you enter into a state of consecration, you're actually not allowed to do a lot of things that you would normally be allowed to do. You're not allowed to cut your hair. You're not allowed to go hunting, okay? So then they pose this question. Look, if uh, A coerces B, who is a muhrim, to kill an animal um, such that it violates his ihram, it violates his, his status of, uh, uh, of, of being a muhrim, we still are going to hold the muhrim responsible for doing the expiation to recover the state of ihram, to recover the state of sanctification that you need in order to do hajj or in order to do the pilgrimage, right? Similarly, when, in the case of coerced murder, when B kills C, he is violating the obligation which attaches to him personally, the moral obligation not to do C harm. And uh, while the legal penalty gets transferred to A, 
that violation of that moral uh, of that moral duty that attaches to B's person specifically still remains, and for that reason, B is still transgressing a moral commandment, and he's liable to be held responsible by God on the day of judgment. So that's kind of like the way that they reasoned out. Uh, and that's only one position. The other position was the Abu Yusuf position. Uh, and Abu Yusuf said, look, neither one, neither A nor B can be held legally responsible. A can't be held re- responsible because he's not the one that physically undertook the act of homicide. And B can't be held uh, legally responsible because there's a doubt because he was coerced. And there's a well-known principle in Islamic law that uh, doubt doubts repel punishments. So he can't be punished because there, there's a legal doubt. Uh, and for that reason, neither one can be legally held responsible to the point of execution. Now, they might be held responsible, conjointly held responsible for paying the blood money to the victim's family and things like that, but not they cannot be executed. And then the final position was the position of this lesser-known student named Zufar, who was also like lived around the time, little, lived a little bit, died a little bit after Shaybani, uh, Abu Hanifa's student. And he basically said, look, it's B. B is the one that's fully morally responsible, and because he's morally responsible, he also is legally responsible. It's like the reason why we hold him legally responsible is because he is the physically the person that committed the act and he has sinned, so therefore it makes sense to, to execute him. So those are like the three positions in Hanafism. And Shafism had two positions. One position uh, held that both, both A and B are responsible. They are both fully responsible for the act legally, and they are both, they should, they may both be executed. Um, and then there was another Shafi position. Shafi kind of had two positions on this issue from the perspective of the later Shafi tradition. And they said, no, only A is held responsible, not B. And the Shafi's kind of talked about this entire issue of coerced murder within the context of the problem of superior orders, generally speaking. The problem with superior orders is to what extent can an inferior use the fact that he was commanded to do something in a by a person in a position of authority as an excuse not to be held legally responsible for it. So they kind of really conceived of the problem of coerced homicide as a species of the problem of superior orders. And the paradigm case that they were imagining is the caliph or the ruler orders a subordinate to kill someone. And that's kind of where they began. And then they said, well, what if it's not a ruler? What if A is not a ruler? What if A is the is a just a person who has power uh, illegally, illegitimately over a given region? What if A is just a gangster? Uh, what if A is just not a gangster, nor a, and they said they basically said, look, it matters what social position and political position you occupy. So that was kind of an interesting way in which Shafi's analyzed the problem. Um, the interesting thing about rape. Um, Rape kind of follows this uh, this way of thinking about coerced harm generally. It, it tracks closely to to uh, the way that coerced murder was discussed. However, the one interesting thing is 
In the case of rape, you have something that something different occurs. And the question is, in order for A, so let's say A coerces B through a threat against B's life to rape C. The question is this. Let's say B rapes C, all right? In order for B to even be capable of raping C, unless B has to have an erection, right? And we're talking about uh, B is, it's always assumed that A is a man, B is a man. And it's assumed that C is a woman. So then the question becomes, well, what's the meaning of the erection? Is the erection, do we interpret that as some kind of willingness or desire on the part of B? Um, and therefore B is willingly raping her, raping C, and therefore B should be held 100% responsible? Or do we interpret the erection as a natural stimulus? So they actually had a discussion about, well, is, is an erection an indication of desire and willingness? Or is an erection merely a net response to a natural stimuli? And one of the arguments that Sarakhsi uses in exploring this issue is, like, look, he says, look, men have get erections when they're asleep all the time. And they're not, you know, choosing to have an erection. So it's a natural stimuli. So the fact that B is capable, is able to rape C through the erection does not necessarily mean that B is willing to to do the act. So that was kind of an interesting aspect of the rape that they discussed that was missing from their discussion of uh, coerced homicide. It, it's it's fascinating the uh, the multiple ways that they they rationalize and make sense of these uh, these concerns. Um, before we let you go, uh, we'd love to hear about the types of things you're working on now, or perhaps some publications we might expect in the future. So I have uh, I'm working on two simultaneously on two big projects right now. One project is there's a huge debate among scholars who study early Islam on how do you de- date and authenticate hadith that are attributed to Muhammad or the companions or the early figures of early Islamic history. Because we have like hundreds of thousands of reports uh, that are attributed to Muhammad, attributed to the Prophet and the companions and the early, early figures of Islam. But because we don't have a way of dating these reports, we have not actually been able to draw on them to write a history of early Islam. Um, so me and, and a couple of colleagues uh, of mine uh, were working jointly on a project to develop, uh, use computational techniques to try to solve this problem of dating so that we can make this resource available for anyone who wants to write a history of, of early Islam. Uh, and we're also trying to, because when you look at these reports uh, and the isnads that precede them, and you examine the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of them, and there are tens of thousands of people that are in the chains of transmissions uh, of these reports, when you map it all out, what you quickly realize is that there is actually a huge social network of tens of thousands of teachers and students that related to each other that spanned about two and a half centuries 
Um, and we think that uh, our uh, hypothesis is that this is a social network and therefore, and there are many tools that are developed in other disciplines to analyze social networks. So we think we want to kind of deploy those tools to analyze the social network that that made that made up the hadith transmission in the first two and a half centuries of Islam. So that's one project. And the second project that I'm really interested in, I'm generally interested in the development of ideas about uh, gender, sexuality, and family uh, over the course of Islamic history. And I want to kind of write a a history that documents the continuity and change and the norms that regulate sexuality, marriage, and family life in Islamic thought um, and try to give an account of when the norms were continuous, why and when they changed, why and what were the factors that can help us model change and continuity in this particular subject, uh, in this particular area. Those are the two big, two big projects that I'll be spending next few years developing, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, they definitely sound like a lot of work. So yeah, yeah. good luck, and uh, thanks for making the time to talk about uh, this wonderful book. Thank you, Christian, for having me on, and it's uh, really quite an honor to be interviewed by you, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk again <laughs> in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> in a few years. Good luck. That was my conversation with Mehraj Saeed about coercion and responsibility in Islam, a study in ethics and law, published with Oxford University Press in 2017. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. We'll catch you next time.